Chapter 13. Firstborn. The principles of the firstborn parallel those of the first fruits. The slaying of the firstborn of man and beast in Egypt signified the slaying of all Egypt. The redemption of the firstborn of both man and beast of Israel signified that all of Israel was saved and was God's property and was his son, quote, even my firstborn. Numbers 8.17, Exodus 4.23. The purpose of the tax of the firstborn was to force the Israelites to remember that, quote, by strength of hand the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the house of bondage. Exodus 13.14. The payment of the firstborn was the token or sign that the Israelite acknowledged God as his deliverer and redeemer. Exodus 13.16. This tax was for the purpose of impressing upon the mind the conviction of faith that God alone is the Savior of man. The firstborn were those males who first opened the womb or matrix of both man and beast. They were the Lord's. Quote, for on the day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I hallowed unto me all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. Mine shall they be. I am the Lord. Numbers 3.13 They were to be sanctified by giving them to God. Exodus 13, 1 through 2, 13, 11 through 12, Numbers 8, 17. This does not mean that they were required to be given to the priests. To sanctify means to set aside for God's purpose according to his word. Too often we believe that when scripture requires that God be given something, we assume that that item must have been given to the priests or to the Levites, or in modern times must be given to the institutional church. This is an erroneous assumption. The church in scripture is the body of believers or saints, and not a particular priesthood or institution. To give something to God means to give it in accordance with his word or law. The tax on the firstborn did not necessarily go to the priest, but was required to be set aside for God's special purpose. We can understand this from the fact that the tax of the firstborn of animals was to be given by the Israelites to the priests for free will, sacrifice, and offerings. Numbers 18.17 and also from the fact that the Israelites themselves were required to eat the firstborn of their own flocks and herds at the Feast of Tabernacles, Deuteronomy 14, 22-27. Only those firstborn animals that were actually brought to the priests by the Israelites belonged to them, Numbers 18, 15, while those firstborn animals that remained with the Israelites belonged to them and were to be used for God's special purpose at the Feast of Tabernacles. Deuteronomy 15:19-23. The payment of the tax of the firstborn fell upon both man and beast. For man, the firstborn male child was to be redeemed by the payment of five shekels to the priest. Exodus 13:13, 13, 34:20, 13, Numbers 18:15-16. This payment was required because the Levites had been set apart from the other Israelites for a special and formal ministerial service to God. In effect, the Levites were God's substitution for the firstborn of man, which belonged to the Lord. Originally, God had required that all the firstborn of the Israelites were to be numbered or counted. The Levites were then to take the place of these male firstborn. All those firstborn of the Israelites who numbered in excess of the total number of Levites were required to pay the tax of five shekels each as their redemption from service to God in the Levitical order. This practice was continued thereafter for each new male firstborn child. The payment of this tax redeemed the child from service in the Levitical, Levitical tribe. Numbers 3, 5-13, 14-16, 15-17, 18-19, 
44 through 51. Through the use of this tax, the principle of law of the firstborn was maintained. Since each male firstborn child of those who were not Levites was required to be redeemed from service to God in a special and formal religious order, the family that paid this redemption money was forced to recognize the lordship of God. The payment of this tax preserved the juridical principle of God's total ownership and control of the family. The tax of the firstborn impressed upon the minds of the Israelites their redemption and deliverance by the hand of God. Exodus 13:14. The payment of this redemption money is no longer required. It is no longer required because the, Le the Levitical ministry, as a separate and distinct order of society, has been abolished. The Levit Levitical order was established by God for a special formal religious charge. Numbers 3, 5 through 13, 8, 5 through 22. Their function was to keep the charge of the tabernacle and act as a cohesive element of society that joined the other tribes into a federal union. It was the priests and Levites who were to provide for religious sacrifice, ceremony, education, and other services for all Israel. By centralizing all formal religious functions into one tribe, which was then dispersed throughout all the remaining tribes, no tribe could regard itself as autonomous. They could, they could not, since each tribe was dependent upon the priests and Levites for their formal service to God. Such a centralized and yet dispersed religious order allowed for a decentralized and federal political and economic order. It did so because at the heart of every federal union must be a common faith. Without a common faith and destiny among the members of a federal union, no political and economic union can remain decentralized and effective. Conflicting faiths will cause fragmentation of such a union, and eventually war among its members. The establishment of the Levitical priesthood and ministry was for the purpose of providing a centralized and common faith and service that was to be dispersed throughout the tribes. This order was to be the agency for providing the various elements of society with a common faith, law, and destiny or purpose. With the advent of Christ, this special priestly and Levitical ministry has been replaced. Christ is now our high priest, the firstborn of every creature, Romans 8.29, Colossians 1.14-15. We, in turn, are his church of the firstborn, Hebrews 12.23. Since the purpose of the old Levitical order was to provide society with a common faith through their service to the high priest, and since that old high priest has been replaced, it can be understood that the old Levitical order has also been replaced. Now Christ is the high priest of all those who are called of him. Because we are the redeemed in Christ and members of his body, we compose the new Levitical ministry. We are called to serve society through service to Christ. Christians, then, are to be the new cohesive element of society that provides for the centralized rule of faith and law through Christ, yet they are also to be dispersed throughout every area of society. By doing so, they can provide the necessary framework for common religious ceremony, education, and service to Christ the High Priest, which will, in turn, provide the necessary bedrock for political and economic federalism. Christ is the high priest, and Christians are the new Levites, who are to provide the various elements of society with a common faith, law, and destiny. For this reason, Christians no longer have to pay the redemption money since they are members of the body and ministry of Christ, who is the great high priest and head of the new Levitical order. The tax of the firstlings of the flock and herds was to be used for two general purposes. 
it was to be used for free will sacrifice offerings, Numbers 18.17, and for rejoicing before the Lord, Deuteronomy 14.22-27. The sacrifice offerings were given to the priests and became their property, which were then to be used according to the law of God. The amount or number of firstlings given to the priests varied with the particular offerings, desires, and generosity of the individual who brought them to priests, Numbers 18.8-19. The remaining firstlings of beasts were to be eaten at the Feast of Tabernacles by the owners and their families. From the time of the birth of these firstlings to their offering as sacrifice or use at the yearly Feast of Tabernacles, no work was to be done with the firstborn. Neither were the firstborn of sheep to be sheared. Deuteronomy 15, 19-23 The firstlings were the Lord's and were to be used for his designated purpose. Man was not to use these animals or their skins, fleece, etc. for his own gain or purpose. The firstborn were the Lord's and were to be used by both the priests and the Israelites according to God's purpose as expressed in his word. The firstlings of the animals came under two categories, clean and unclean. Clean animals were to be used for both sacrifice and for rejoicing and could not be redeemed. Numbers 18, 15-19 If, however, the distance to Jerusalem was too great to take these animals to the Feast of Tabernacles, then they could be sold and the money used for rejoicing before the Lord. Deuteronomy 14, 24-27 If a clean animal had a blemish, such as blindness or lameness, then it could not be taken to Jerusalem, but was to be eaten within the confines of the local community, Deuteronomy 16, 19-23. In all cases, no clean animal could be redeemed and then used for the owner's purpose. It could be sold to another, but the money had to be used solely for God's purpose. This prevented the owner from using God's property for his own gain. Unclean firstlings could not be used either for sacrifice or for rejoicing. They could not because no unclean animal could be offered to God either in ceremony or by eating. Both actions were prohibited by ceremonial and dietary laws. For this reason, all unclean firstborn animals had to be redeemed by estimating their value and adding a fifth part to it, sold for what they could bring in the market, or they had to be destroyed. Exodus 13.13, 34, 20 Numbers 18.15-19, Leviticus 27.26-27. 27. If the animals were redeemed, then they could be used by the owner for his own purpose, but the redemption money had to be used for God's purpose since it belonged to him. If the animal had no value and was neither redeemed nor could be sold, then it had to be destroyed. The firstlings were gods and man could not use them, or the money received for them for any, any purpose other than for sacrifice or for rejoicing before the Lord. The destruction of the firstborn of worthless animals precluded their use by man. If the animals were valueless commercially, yet a man wished to retain them for his use or enjoyment, then he had to redeem them. For example, in ancient Israel, dogs, which are unclean animals, had no commercial value. The normal procedure for the Jews was that they destroyed the firstborn male pup. But under God's law, this was unnecessary if a man wished to retain the ownership of the dog for his own use and enjoyment. He could simply fix the value to the pup, add one-fifth to it, and redeem the dog and keep it. The money was the substitution for the unclean animal's life. This redemption money was then to be used solely for God's purpose. By forcing man to destroy all unclean firstlings that had no value, 
God forced man to see God as both the Lord and Redeemer of all creation. If the animal had no value to man, then man had no use for it. If man had no use for it, then the animal, animal obviously could not provide man with any emotional, psychological, or financial gain. Therefore, the unclean animal had to be destroyed, since it could neither be used for sacrifice or rejoicing, nor could it be sold or redeemed. This forced a man to recognize that God was Lord over all life and thought. He was constantly forced to think God's thoughts after him and his judgments of value. If the animal had any value at all for him, even if it had no commercial value, then he had to redeem it or he would lose it. Man simply could not use God's firstborn without providing a redemption or substitution for it. This, in turn, forced a man to see that redemption was not possible apart from God. It forced him to recognize that, because all the firstborn were owned by God, all life was owned by God. It impressed upon his mind and conviction of faith that he was to judge constantly the use and value of all things by the law of God. The principle of the tax of the firstborn is basically the same as the principle of the tax of the firstfruits. Its purpose is to force man to acknowledge God as the owner-lord of all things. The tax of the first fruit signified that God owned all the harvest, wages, and other productive efforts of man. The tax of the firstborn signifies that God owns all life. It is to impress upon the heart and mind of man the juridical principle of lordship. God, not man, is to be seen as the giver, sustainer, and redeemer of life and its blessings. The payment of the tax of the first fruits forces a man to see that his productive rewards are simply the gifts of God. In like manner, the payment of the tax of the firstborn forces man to see that all, all of life is a gift of God. Life, all of it, is only to be used for God's purpose, since God controls it through his ownership and redemption of the firstborn. Life can only be created and redeemed by God, and is only to be used in accordance with his revealed word. The taxes of the first fruit and the tax of the firstborn both emphasize God's total ownership of man and creation. The tax of the first fruits impresses upon man that God alone is the giver of the material gifts of productivity and prosperity. This tax emphasizes man's total dependence upon God for his prosperity. Hence, man is required to give to, bo to both the priest and to himself the first fruits of his labors. The amount to be given is a free will offering. The amount is up to the individual because what is emphasized by payment of this tax is a man's total dependence upon the law of God in all his labors. This tax is to impress upon his mind that it is because of his obedience to the word of God that God has given him prosperity. It is man's obedience to God's high priest and God's law that brings man material benefits. For this reason, man is required to give the tax of the first fruits to the priest in recognition of God's gifts, and he is to rejoice with the tax of the first fruits as his acknowledgement of his gift of gain from the hand of the Lord. The amount that is paid is not of utmost importance for any amount that is paid symbolizes man's recognition that God is Lord in this area. What is singularly important is that man acknowledge God's law as the rule over every area of his life and thought. Therefore, God requires that the instructors of his word be given the best of the first fruits, and that the laborer should also rejoice with his tax because it was his instruction in God's law that has enabled him to prosper in the Lord. What is emphasized in the tax of the first fruits is not the amount of tax that is to be paid, but the acknowledgement by man of his dependence upon God's law 
and upon those whom God has appointed to instruct him in it. The thrust of the tax of the firstborn is to force man to recognize that God alone is the creator, owner, and redeemer of all life. For this reason, this tax emphasizes the amount to be paid rather than to whom it must be paid. Christ, quote, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Colossians 1.18 Christ is the firstborn of the new creation. It is from and through Christ that all things have new life. The tax of the firstborn symbolizes man's recognition of all of life as a gift of God's Redeemer, Savior, Son. Hence, God requires that all, all firstlings be acknowledged as belonging to him. No firstborn can be exempt from this law, for if it were, it would be an acknowledging that life in its creation and redemption could be ha had apart from God. Therefore, God emphasizes the amount of this tax to be paid rather than to whom it must be paid. All of the firstborn, without exception, must be used for God's purpose. That purpose is that man must present all the firstlings of his animals as freewill offerings or gifts to God's instructors in his law and or use them for rejoicing before the Lord. The amount to be used for either is a free will offering, but what is not used for one purpose must be used for the other. All of the firstlings must be used for either a free will offering or as a rejoicing tribute to the Lord. The sacrifice or free will offering is in reality a thanks offering. The firstborn were given by the Israelites to the priests as a sacrifice of joy or thanksgiving for their deliverance from Egypt. Exodus 13:14. In the same sense, the eating of the firstlings at the yearly Feast of Tabernacles, Deuteronomy 14, 22-27, was also a sacrifice of rejoicing before God. In both cases, the use of the firstborn as thanksgiving and as rejoicing tributes to God was for the purpose of acknowledging the Lord as their deliverer and redeemer from corruption. Both sacrifices were seen as joyous tributes and praise to God for the redemption and through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The firstlings, or their equivalent, their redemption money, were, under normal conditions, to be taken to Jerusalem and used there for both sacrifice and rejoicing. The reason for this is because the high priest and the tabernacle were located at the great city. Jerusalem was the place where God had established his mediator between God and man. The office, the office and work of the high priest were the focal point of all Israel. It was under the protecting care and providence of God as expressed in the office of the high priest that all the various elements and agencies of Jewish society were to operate. Not even the state was greater than this office, for from this office God ruled all Israel through the work of atonement by the high priest. Therefore, all rejoicing and sacrifice before God for Israel's redemption from corruption were to be centered at the great city. Tribute to God was to be paid before the throne of God's mediator on earth. With the advent of Christ, the office of high priest was removed from Jerusalem. Christ, being very man of very man, and very God of very God, became the new high priest of the new Israel. The old office of the high priest was done away with that a better could be established. Christ is our high priest and mediator, whose throne is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. For this reason, the need for the tax of the firstlings to be used at Jerusalem has passed. No centralized location is now necessary or desirable for the payment of this tax. But the necessity for payment of the firstlings has not passed away. 
Christ performed no act that removed the necessity for the payment of the tax of the firstborn by his brethren. The new Israel must pay this tax as their sign or token of their deliverance from the house of bondage, as a token of their joyful redemption in Christ. This tax is not large, but the principle that it impresses upon the mind and heart of man is extremely important. Every payment of this tax forces a man to recognize his own dependence upon God. It forces him to see that his very life is a free gift of God. It forces him to acknowledge that no aspect of life has divorced from God in his redemptive work. The tax of the firstborn symbolizes man's acknowledgement of his salvation by grace through faith in Christ as the Lord. It forces a man back upon God. This tax is as binding upon the new Israel as it was upon the old Israel. The principle of this tax is that all firstborn male animals that open the matrix are gods and are to be used either for free will offerings, for Christian reconstruction, and or as tributes for rejoicing before the Lord. This can be done by, one, using the firstlings themselves as gifts and or food if they are clean animals, two, selling them and using the proceeds for Christian reconstruction and or for rejoicing, or three, redeeming them by adding a fifth part to their value and then using these funds in a similar manner. This, in turn, forces man back upon the work of God. It impresses upon the heart and mind of man the knowledge that all life is the result of the creative and redemptive work of the Lord and of his Christ.